Let be done. The entire race is under death sentence because of sin. First, Adam died because of his sin. Then each man following him died because of Adam's sin and because of his own sin. But the truth remains the same. Unless the Lord chose, we will all face death. Only Enoch will not die. We're, going, we're not going to go over all ten of these names. I've chosen three names I think are significant for us to look at. The first is Adam. And we see in the first couple of verses that it kind of goes over what happened in creation. It says, this book, this is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he followed a son in his own likeness. After his lineage, he named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he followed Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. This list begins with Adam, since he's the father of the human race. Verse 3 tells us that Adam had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Seth wasn't created in the image of God. It means that Seth was born in Adam's image in the sense of Romans 5, if you remember where it talked about the fact that Sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Adam was a sinner by choice and by nature, and that nature with his desires is now passed on to all descendants of Adam. We're made in God's image, and yet at the same time we're born with a nature that moves us to rebel against God. The second question we want to touch base on this morning from that genealogy is Enoch. And here we see God's grace. In the middle of this depressing pattern of all dying, there is the exception. Enoch did not die. Verse 22 through 24, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. 300 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus all of the days of Enoch for 365 years, Enoch walked with God. He was not. God took him. Instead of dying, Enoch was taken directly into God's presence. Just look one moment, and next, in God's presence. He wasn't kidnapped. No one killed him. Maybe he remember like the prophet Elijah, he was lifted up in a whirlwind into heaven. Enoch had been walking with God after the birth of his son Methuselah. As I read that, I couldn't ever think about a lot of men that I know in our congregation in over the years. A lot of times God uses that husband, that father, looking down in the face of his firstborn child. And it changes his life as he sees the responsibility of raising children. And the man 
It's about being a father, about being a husband, about his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to walk with God? Walking together in Christ, or at least two or three things. First, we have to be in the same place at the same time. If I'm out here in California walking, and you're on Western walking, but we're both walking, we're not walking together. If I'm on North Avenue, and I'm there at 7 p.m., and you're there at noon, we're not walking together. Secondly, we have to be going in the same direction. If I'm going east, and you're going west, we're not walking together. And third, we have to be going at the same pace. I confess, I love to walk, Sometimes on Saturdays or Sundays I can call Chris and sometimes I can jail to go along with. And I've always, I find myself way in front of everybody else. And it's usually Jerry that says, uh, Dad, you're way in front of us. Slow down. You're taking a stroll. See, I wasn't walking with them. Walking together implies a short commitment to be in the same place, the same time, going in the same direction together. In order, in order to walk with God, in order that He had set His heart to walk with God by His side, in the same direction. The same pace all day long. And so we did. Day after day. Week after week. Year after year. For some 300 years. You know, lost on year because we walked. Our third question is many. Verses 28 through 31, we read that when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after, his fa- after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. All the days of many were 777 years and died. Noah, the name means rest and comfort. This godly Lamech looked in the future and someone or other through God giving him that or someone or other who knew that his son would be used by God to comfort people and to bring deliverance. What a contrast to remember last week when Cohen was preaching and looking at the line of Cain. There was a Lamech, seventh generation, just as this Lamech. He was very different. You remember he was uh, boastful, very arrogant, he was violent. He killed someone and bragged about killing someone. Whereas 
Genesis 5 comes to an end, we see that line narrowing down to one person, to Noah, which is his sons. As we continue on and move into chapter 6 of Genesis, we see the downward spiral of the culture before God's judgment through the blood. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we see that. Sin is like cancer of the human soul. Life starts unnoticed. Sometimes just with a small compromise in our lives. Sometimes there are, usually there are some symptoms that show up and we kind of dismiss them. Or we uh, make excuses for maybe why they're there. But cancer is there. And it's growing. It's working corruption in the person. It's contaminating those relationships that he has or she has. If unchecked, that cancer, that sin, will contaminate a whole society. I can't mention to you before I have a strong sense of smell and what is here at the church office or at home. I sometimes can walk in the house and I smell something. And Chris and Zach and Jed will say, I don't smell anything. I walk in a couple days, three days, that smell is still there. And I start turning things upside down. To find that smell that no one else smells. Sure enough, it's a bag of potatoes. Start out with one. One started rotting. Pretty soon, several of them were rotten. The same way sin starts out small, but it works corruption in our lives, in our relationships, in our culture and society. Of course, the final result of this is God's judgment. His grace gives us repeated opportunities to repent. This process is pictured for us in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, which describes the world just prior to the judgment through the flood. And we should pay careful attention to this passage. People in Noah's days totally ignored God's warnings. Remember, they went about life doing normal things, oblivious to repeated warnings of judgment that would come. Jesus Christ said the same thing that happened when he returns. This is chapter 24 of Matthew. It says, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day we were in the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And then Christ says, That is how we do at the coming of the Son of Man. You see, back in Noah's day, it was business as usual. They were eating and drinking, nothing wrong with that. They were marrying and giving in marriage. Wait. They were buying and selling and continuing just doing the usual activities of life. The children were going to school. The businessmen were making deals. The teachers were teaching. The doctors were dispensing medicine and giving advice. 
and the farmers were tending crops. The planting well paid no attention to this crazy Noah who was building this big boat in his backyard. I'm sure that Noah was probably a brother of a few jokes as he warned them of the coming judgment. But they didn't listen to him. But at the last day, when Noah moved into the ark, the rains came down, and the floods came up. Matthew 24, 39 says that they did not know. They did not know what was happening. What an indictment. This was supposed to be an age of enlightenment, but they didn't know. This was supposed to be a great progressive age. They didn't know it was an age of music and fine arts and literature, but they didn't know. You see, they knew so much, but understood so little. They knew nothing about what really mattered. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They had no time for God until it was too late. That was the days of Noah. They were wise fools who didn't care about the warnings of Noah. When the flood came, it took them all. Genesis 1 through 8 offers, I think probably the Bible's most detailed answer to the question, why did God send the flood? There's this rapid spiritual deterioration within the culture. I love how one man described it, kind of summarized everything. He said, at first, the serpent had to talk Eve into sin. And then Adam sinned deliberately. And then God couldn't talk Cain out of sin. And then Lamech, Cain's descendant, boasted about his murder. But now, with the passing of a few generations, the entire world has become a cesspool of sin. Things became so evil that God decides to start all over again. I think in this passage we'll see about four or five things about this time period, and some things of why, and understand more of why God did what He did. And we see first in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, I guess you could call it an abuse of marriage. Verse 1 begins, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. This is a tough passage, but before we look at the debated issues, I want to look at a couple of things. First, these marriages were made based on nothing more than physical attraction. It's okay to look and see someone about the sex that is attractive, but here is basically a man saw a woman and said, I like her, she's beautiful. I like her. And he took her. Forget about her wisdom, or lack of it. Forget about her abilities, or her character. Don't worry about her personality. And certainly, don't bother 
as whether she was a father. Those things just didn't work. See, marriage at that point had become nothing more than a satisfaction of the pure animal appetite. We see that God boundaries are being broken for marriage. We know that Lamech of Cain's line had felt free to take more than one wife. And what would stop a man from taking five, ten wives? He's living according to his flesh. So after thinking about that whole aspect of marriage there, the real question regarding these verses involves that mysterious statement that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Who this place is referencing? There are three main answers that have been given over the years. We're way way back. First is the suggestion that this refers to the intermarriage of believers and non-believers, the line of Seth, who was godly, the line of, of Cain, whose line was ungodly. Sons of God, of course, would be Seth's line, the daughters of men, in this perspective, would be the ungodly line of Cain. And judgment comes, according to this view, because of the spiritual corruption of compromise. If you look at chapter 4 and chapter 5, you can see that there's very much truth in that context. Chapter 4 talks about just how ungodly Cain's line was. In chapter 5, of course, we see the line through which the Messiah comes, the God line. I just don't think as you, as you study more and more, we'll have time to go through all this, but there's too many problems. I think there's some technical terms for that. A second view is that the sons of God is a technical term for the ancient Near East um, rulers, who were men, and they were tyrants. And um, in some ancient cultures, if you think about think back about that, even more recently, kings were considered gods. There's even one passage in the Bible that uses the word Elohim, which is God, for God, is used for men in a position of authority. This is a credible view, but it has weaknesses and problems. The third, the oldest interpretation, suggests that the sons of God refers to angels who rebelled against God, demons, the inhabited bodies of men, married women, gave birth, producing the Nephilim in, in verse 4, who were tyrants and pretty evil people. On the surface, this view seems strange and even bizarre, but it is a pretty strong contender for what the passage teaches. For one thing, the term sons of God in the Old Testament always, always refers to angels. This interpretation goes well with Genesis 3.15, which emphasizes Satan's long war against the seed of the woman that would eventually produce the Messiah. So just think, if you're Satan, what better way to destroy the coming Messiah? 
and to corrupt the human race for the introduction of humanism. This truly is the oldest interpretation. This is how Jewish scholars understood the text two centuries before Jesus Christ was born. Sons of God is used several times in the Old Testament. I'll give you a couple of them here. Job 1.6 says, The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The statement came again. Job 38.7, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Again, the term sons of God used for angels. This interpretation helps us to understand two passages in the New Testament. 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and permitted them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. But he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, when he fell a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what will happen to the ungodly, he goes on. And then Jude 6 and 7 says, Angels who do not stay within their position of authority, but left the puppet dwelling, he has kept eternal chains until the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, which likewise adults in sexual immorality pursued unnatural desire, serving as an example of undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Those passages describe a judgment of certain angels who not only sin but abandon their proper dwelling. Note that the first passage, the angels are mentioned first within Noah and the flood. And in Jude, the phrase, just as, joins the angels with the story of Solomon and Gomorrah. So what is the sin of Solomon and Gomorrah? Genesis 19, 4 and 5 reads, All the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are these men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah were ready to wait two angels would come to Lot's house. To put all this together in a short time here, in the days before the flood, some angels rebelled against God and entered human bodies in the form of being possession, taking for them human wives. And the result again the Nephilim mentioned in verse 4. And for this then the angels were sent to a pit of deep darkness and the existing civilization was wiped out. We know that from the Gospels that demons crave human bodies or incantified. Remember when the region were cast out of the demoniac that they were allowed to enter into a herd of pigs. So one final note. I leaned toward this last view. I, I really wanted to kind of lean toward the self and uh, came to you because it's less bizarre. Um, 
they're strange. But there were things, and I can't, you know, I can't go through all the details of this. Um, but, but I do feel that the third one is the, is the most accurate. But having said that, I want to, want you to know that this is a very hard passage to interpret. And there are many godly evangelicals who hold different, all three, of different views. So there's no one who can say with certainty which view it is. It's easy in the midst of all this controversy about what this passage means to lose the application to this text. The debate is centuries old. The godly men again holding different views. But whichever view is right, the application is the same. The human race, before the flood, was corrupted by sin. So much so that God caused the flood to destroy all mankind except for Noah and his family. We see then one reason for this flood taking place was the abuse of marriage. In verse 3, we see a second reason. We see a end of God's patience, so to speak. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide or put up with man forever, but he is fresh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. This verse is both a warning and a promise of grace extended for a time period. I believe the 120 years refers not to man's new um, lifespan. If you go back to the to the genealogy, people lived 700, 800, 900 years. But I think the context too is that God is giving man 120 years of grace to repent. God had protected them. At some point, protection had to be removed, and man would be left to deal with his consequences. Romans 1 says that when men rebel against God, that sooner or later, that, he, that God gives them up to face the consequences of their sinful choices. God will not protect us from ourselves forever. Sooner or later, judgment day comes, and we have to face the music of our lives. In this case, I believe that God was given them in between years. Well, first, there's abuse of marriage, the reason for the flood. Second, there's God's patience. It's going to an end. And third, we see this headlong rush into evil. Verse 6, um, six uh, chapter verse 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me read that one more time. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I think there's anywhere else in the Bible that gives us such a clear description of total depravity of a man's heart without God. This is how God sees mankind. 
This is the human race wholly apart from God's grace. Let's look at this passage and kind of break it down just a little bit. First, sin is internal. It's a heart matter. The intentions of his heart. Second, sin is pervasive. It touches every part of our being. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart. And third, sin is continual. It consumes man and controls him. Every intent of the heart and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Continually. This is what you and I are apart from God's grace. Any good that you and I might do is stained by the dirt of our sin. God says in Isaiah 64, 6, that our good deeds are like filthy rags. Filthy rags. Our hearts are so wicked, we don't even know half of our own sin. So we don't, we shouldn't read Genesis 6, 5 and say, man, those people back then were terrible. Read it, I think, and look in the mirror. Read it and look in the mirror. There's no difference between them and us except for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the whole point. Romans 3, 23 says, We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No difference between them and us. No difference between them and us. All of the thoughts of man are continually evil. It's not for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. One verses 6 and 7 we see the fourth thing. We see the flood was a judgment from heaven. Verse 6 and 7 and 8. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am starved and have made but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God was grieved. His grief was a sign of his love. And God's not this robot without feelings. He's not this God who has idea that he created the earth and kind of just let it run on its own. God cares. And all these reasons for judgment, though, we see God's grace in verse 8. Noah found grace. It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the world. Only one man in this family was spared. And the word translated favor actually means grace. The first time we receive the word grace, it means un- undeserved favor. It's that contrary to merit favor that we get. Don't read this verse and think, Noah was a really good man. He was a righteous man. Because he obeyed God. He earned his grace. Noah was like you and me. He found favor. He found God's grace. 